Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's sat in London, and if you could actually see me, I am utterly melting. It is sweltering today. Uh, global warming has hit uh, the capital of the UK with a vengeance. Um, but today, I'm joined by Kyle Kondek, who is a US uh, political pundit. Kyle, um, what are your credentials, sir? Uh, so I am managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball, which is a, a weekly nonpartisan uh, elections handicapping newsletter produced by my employer, the University of Virginia uh, Center for Politics. Most of my colleagues are down in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, about two and a half hours uh, southwest of Washington, D.C. I'm actually based in Washington, D.C. And uh, so I'm used to the whole telecommuting thing, even though it's uh, it's become much more familiar to many more people <laughs> in the past several months. A lot of people, um, their whole routine has been turned upside down because of the pandemic, but that wasn't the case for you then. You, you're kind of used from working from home, so I presume you're a Zoom ninja. <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, I, I am I am used to the, the telecommuting thing, although you know, I also uh, go around town having meetings with people, traveling and whatnot, and, and obviously a lot of that has been uh, been curtailed, but but yeah, it was, it was probably a more seamless transition for me than, than many other folks. Talking about telecommuting, we have a campaign to be the president of the United States and uh, Zoom and telecommuting seem to be a fundamental part of that. It'd be trite of me to say, can you remember a campaign which was thus, because there hasn't been one in presidential history. Substantively, what do you think we're going to learn or not learn about the prospective candidates because of the unique conditions imposed on them by the pandemic? To me, it, it actually there there is kind of some precedent in that you you, you turn back the clock pretty far more than a, you know hundred years ago or more to you know a time when when presidential candidates maybe were not really actively campaigning all that much um, and uh, uh, 
they, they weren't really, they weren't really traveling. Obviously travel was a lot different back then. Um, but also it was seen as sort of um, almost beneath the candidates to be kind of outwardly campaigning for themselves because there was this whole tradition in the United States that uh, uh, the, to use the cliche, the office seeks the man as opposed to the man seeking the office. Um, there was some tradition of uh, what can sometimes be called a, a front porch campaign where sometimes maybe supporters would go see um, a candidate and they would, you know, literally speak from the front porch of their house. So that sort of thing. And so actually Joe Biden being holed up in Wilmington, Delaware is actually kind of a, it's kind of a throwback to the, the distant past. But more recently, we're used to presidential candidates um, campaigning all over the country, although not necessarily all over the country, but but really in the most important uh, swing states. And so um, the American Midwest is typically, there, there are a lot of states that are very competitive and generally reflect the national voting. Uh, Ohio has that tradition, although it voted relatively heavily for Donald Trump in 2016, but um, Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, those are all states that are very competitive. And so you would, you would see candidates visiting there all the time. And we, I think we will see candidates visiting to some extent, just maybe not as, as much as we're used to. A uh, state like Florida is always very competitive, Nevada, a handful of other states. But even though we have very close to competitive national elections, only a relative handful of the individual states actually vote close to the national average. So you're not going to see candidates campaigning in California, New York, which are both extremely democratic states. You're not going to see the candidates campaigning in many of the states of the South or sort of the uh, um, interior West and Great Plains because a lot of those states are very heavily Republican. So very nationally competitive elections, but not a whole lot of states that are, that are super competitive themselves. You identified the fundamentally the swing states and how votes Ohio votes the nation. Could you give us a snapshot of the opinion polling uh, where we are now, middle of August uh, 2020, in, in just a couple of the states? So we have an idea of how far up or down the Biden or the Trump campaigns actually are. So Joe Biden is generally leading in national polls by high single digits. And so, you know, some polls will be less than this, some polls will be more than this, but but generally in sort of the seven to nine point range, which is really a pretty, pretty decent lead. And also there are fewer undecideds in the polls than there were in 2016. And there are also fewer people saying they're going to vote for a non-major party. So, so voting for the libertarian candidate or the green party candidate, or even the, the rapper Kanye West, who is trying to get on the ballot in a handful of states as uh, I think essentially a, a spoiler candidate who would be effectively the Republicans think helping Donald Trump. But the bottom line is there's not, not going to be that much of a third party vote. And a lot of voters, I think, have basically already made up their minds. And so I guess there may be fewer undecided voters to keep track of than there were in 2016, which in some ways makes Biden's lead probably more real than Hillary Clinton's was. But I also don't think that he's some sort of, you know, lock to win the election or anything. If you go to the states that were the most important in 2016, and namely Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, all states that Trump won by a little less than a, a percentage point in 2016. And if Hillary Clinton had won those three states, she would have won the Electoral College and the election. Biden's lead in those states is usually maybe a little bit smaller than his national lead, which kind of makes sense because uh, those states voted a little bit to the right of the nation as a whole in, in 2016, which explains how Hillary Clinton was able to win the popular vote by two points, but not actually win the election and the Electoral College. Uh, but Biden's lead in those states is generally in the, you know, maybe five to seven point range. So doing well enough in enough states to win the election at this point, it's just a question as to whether that lead holds up. Or not. 
Joe Biden and Kamala Harris held their first campaign event together as running mates on Wednesday. It comes one day after the senator was announced as the vice presidential pick. The two spoke at a high school gymnasium in Biden's hometown of Wilmington, Delaware. Biden highlighted Harris's experience and described her as somebody ready to tackle the major issues the U.S. is facing this year. Natalie Brandt was at that event and joins us now from Wilmington. All right, Natalie, let's go ahead and start with you. Talk to us a little bit about this debut event. Did we learn anything about the campaign's message when it comes to issues like the coronavirus crisis or racial injustice? Well, we learned and we knew that those are some of the key issues that this ticket will be focusing on. But Senator Harris in person for the first time as the newly announced running mate uh, did a really uh, significant job of striking a balance, alternating between being uh, an attack dog going after the incumbent President Trump and also advocating for this new ticket and talking about her uh, long history uh, with Biden, specifically uh, her relationship, working relationship with his late son, Bo. And she was able there uh, to give kind of an emotional account about the love and relationship uh, between Joe Biden uh, and his late son. Traditionally, the pick for vice president, if we go back in history, and you've mentioned kind of like the, the porch campaigns of the you know, the, the late 19th century. Traditionally, the VP pick was supposed to just bring in their home state. And that was really it. And there was some notion of them balancing the ticket. So maybe if you had a, a northern candidate, you'd have a VP pick from the south, etc. Um, this VP pick this year for the Democrats is probably one of the most important in history. Is that hyperbole or would you actually go along with the consensus? I would say in an electoral sense, the uh, Joe Biden selection of Kamala Harris probably is not that important, um, although there are some electoral considerations that we can get into. But I would say it's, it is important in the sense that um, if Biden was elected, he would be older on his first day in office as president than any person who would ever served in the job at any time of their presidency. Um, and so, you know, I think voters are cognizant of Biden's advanced age. One of the criticisms of him as a campaigner and something that the Trump campaign uses against him is that um, he, you know, he's, he, he, he's just, he's sometimes not that good on the stump. He's sometimes forgetful. Um, and they try to make some sort of larger argument that, that he is in some ways impaired mentally, which I don't really see. And I think Ultimately, you, you also could really make a similar argument about Trump, given some of the things that he says. But whether you believe that or, or not, uh, I do think a lot of folks are thinking about the, the VP as someone who really credibly could take over for Biden if something were to happen to Biden in his first four years in office, or could basically be the Democratic presidential nominee as soon as 2024 if Biden decided not to run for a, uh, a second term as, as president. So from that standpoint, I do think this choice was really important, even if I can't tell you that it, it, it has that much electoral significance in, in the short term here. Try and explain for us exactly the constituency that Kamala Harris kind of represents within the Democratic Party. I think we all understand that in the Democratic Party, uh, Joe Biden is somewhat to the right. He's very much a centrist in American political terms. He's a moderate. Where exactly does Kamala Harris sit and what constituency does she represent? 
Biden has long, I mean, he's, he's been in American political life since the early 1970s. Uh, his first election he won for the U.S. Senate was back in 1972, which was Richard Nixon's uh, re-election campaign for president. So really a, a long time ago, just been around for a long time. And so I think Biden, as the Democratic Party has gotten more liberal, Biden has gotten more liberal too. And so I, I consider him kind of a mainstream Democrat in sort of the present parlance, which means that he's definitely left of center. Now, there are some progressives, liberals in the Democratic Party who think that that Biden is not liberal or progressive enough. I would say that if you were to sort of try to place these candidates on a on sort of an ideological spectrum, you know, I'd put Biden on the left, but then I would put Kamala Harris to the left of him. And I think we saw that during primary. But then I would put other figures in the Democratic Party or in Democratic politics to the left of both Harris and Biden. And so I think Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Massachusetts and former presidential candidate, would be to the left of both of them. And I think Bernie Sanders, independent progressive senator from Vermont who ran for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2016 and 2020. Sanders would be to the left of all of them. So uh, I I think that I don't even know if we really have so-called moderates in American politics anymore. It's just a question of sort of how conservative are you or how liberal are you, liberal slash progressive or left wing, if you want to use sort of a more kind of internationally recognized term, because the word liberal means different things in different countries. In the context of American politics, if you're a Republican, it's a question of how conservative you are. If you're a Democrat, it's a, it's a question of how liberal you are. And I'd say all of these people we're talking about in the Democratic Party are liberal in the context of American politics. Uh, it's just a question of scale. And so, you know, I think Harris and Biden are relatively similar in their politics, with Harris maybe being a little bit more left wing. You kind of talked about the fact that one of the jibes that the Trump campaign has thrown at Biden is that, um, you know, he's old and doddery and there's some level of mental decline. And that's a bit like people in glass houses throwing stones because, you know, you can completely put together a click tape of Trump uh, fluffing words, not knowing how to say, say things, calling Thailand, Thailand, it goes on and on and on. With that in mind, if you are a chief campaign strategist in the Republican Party, would you be looking at this nomination pick and going, right, we need to forget Biden. It's hard for us to lay a glove on, on him anyway. All right. And do we go after this coastal elitist, non-white, but you have to dog whistle that VP pick? If the Republicans were to do that, it would be very similar to how they've tried to attack Biden already in that they kind of talk more about how Biden is what they call a Trojan horse for the left. And that even if you think Biden is moderate or or whatever, that if you elect him, you're really putting into power, uh, again, all these to Republicans kind of people who are scarier. And so Kamala Harris might be um, part of that, uh, Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic U.S. House Speaker, uh, who, like Kamala Harris, is also from San Francisco, and San Francisco is is almost like a uh, a symbol of of what Republicans dislike. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, uh, who is the House member from New York State, who has become incredibly famous and is definitely a left-wing Democrat. And notice, I think there's an inescapable kind of racist and sexist element that goes into this and that the, the people I'm talking about that the Republicans often sort of use as the faces of the Democratic Party are generally women and they're generally non-white. Now, Pelosi's an exception. You know, again, I think it's a fine line between saying these, these folks are liberal, but then also saying, hey, they're, they're not white men, and so therefore there's something there's something wrong with them or something in, you know, in American political life or something. And look, I mean, the president, 
is someone who I think does make sexist and racist attacks on his opponents. And that sometimes filters into broader Republican messaging as well. If you can sort of separate out some of the the kind of unsavory aspects of the attacks, if you if you're Republican and you want to say that the Democratic ticket is really left wing and that that they think that's a problem, like that's that's not an illegitimate argument. I mean, I don't think any of the people we're talking about are centrists, including Biden. Really, he's a mainstream Democrat, which makes him pretty liberal these days. And that's um, I don't think it's unreasonable to, to say that. Um, Kyle, but, let, let yeah. me understand something. Let me understand something, right? And and you and you've mentioned this, you know, the the expression "liberal," not at all a term of abuse in Europe. And people who would be right of centre would call themselves liberals. It has a very different connotation within Europe than just within the United States. But I'm really quite interested in the fact that you, you've said a few times now that there are no moderates left in in American politics. To me, looking from the outside, the center of American politics is to the right of center of European politics. I, I agree um, with that, yeah. There's an, we have an expression, and I think it's a British one. I don't think it necessarily translates to the United States, but it means you can't put a fag packet between two things. It means that they're too close. Quantifiably, what is the difference between the respective social positions of, let's say, Joe Biden and a Mitt Romney, I would see them both in American terms as being moderates and actually being ideologically very close, or at least if they're not ideologically very close, pragmatically in the way that they would deal with their politics, they're actually being very close. Am I wrong? Um, I disagree. I, I disagree with that. Now, I think there are a lot of Americans who would agree with how you've constructed it there. I look at it in this way, though, that if Biden was president, you know, we have very strong courts in the United States. And in fact, I think in, in some ways, we've outsourced a lot of our governing decisions to our strong judicial system. And so the Supreme Court is almost a um, is almost part of the, the, the sort of legislative process in some ways, because, again, we just sort of kick a lot of decision making to them. You know, Romney's Supreme Court appointments would be very different than Biden's Supreme Court picks in terms of ideology. Yeah, and, and also in terms of an actual governing program, Romney would be pursuing, you know, standard Republican fare, just like Trump has, uh, you know, tax cuts, regulation, dialing back the regulatory state, whereas a uh, Democratic administration under Biden would be expanding the regulatory state, raising taxes, trying to create new social programs. So I do think that, that if a Romney presidency would be a lot different than a Biden presidency, I think what maybe is might be sort of surprising if you think about it is that I don't know how much different a Romney presidency would be from a Trump presidency because Trump is you know ridiculous and outlandish in so many of his public statements but in terms of the governing program it's not that much different than what a normal Republican would do I mean I think maybe on trade policy it's different um, but uh, you know in terms well, of in terms of the, the regulatory state tax cuts that were passed during the Trump administration that's stuff that that, that any Republican but you, but, president but would do but you wouldn't have you wouldn't have a Romney administration pushing back on Obamacare because Obamacare is Romney care for a startup and, and well I, no I, I just I disagree with that because if you look at how Romney ran in 2012 he ran as an opponent of the Affordable Care Act now granted it was it was a problem that when he was governor of Massachusetts he passed a similar program. But I do think that had Romney been elected in 2012, 
they would have tried to do something to roll back the Affordable Care Act, although note that Republicans had control of Washington in 2017 and 2018, and they and failed They failed to do it. Yeah, And, and that's because those um, lawmakers in, in, in swing districts realized when, when they opened their mail back that the vast majority of the constituents were for it. And still, the Trump administration ideologically has tried to push back against it. The Romney administration wouldn't have. They would have seen the way, you know, the, the lie of the land, the direction of the wind, and they would have just very quietly shelved those plans. There are a lot of court battles over the, the Affordable Care Act, too, that the Trump administration is picking that I don't know if a Romney administration would have picked it, just to your point. Yeah. You agree with me, then, in the end? Well, I... <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, again, I, there's, there, there is a, um, and I think you often hear this maybe from people who would support Bernie Sanders. And, uh, and also there's a famous quote from, uh, from George Wallace, that sort of racist Democrat who's ran as an independent in 1968, who has said famously, there's not a dime's worth of difference between the, the Republican and Democratic Party. And so you hear that, that opinion kind of expressed, you know, I, I think people who maybe are on one way or the other kind of ideological extremes of American politics, but I guess I I see more difference there than than maybe someone who supports Sanders does. Sure. But that's that that's a commonly expressed uh, sentiment in the United States. Sure. Um, did Joe Biden choose Kamala Harris or did George Floyd? First of all, I think that Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota, former presidential candidate, I think she would would have been much more strongly considered. Um, before George Floyd than after, given that she's she's also from from Minneapolis and uh, she was a, a local prosecutor there, and uh, her record on police reform probably was was not what what uh, reformers were looking for, and the protesters were looking for, and so I think it would have been a problem to pick her. But I also think that in, when Klobuchar said she was not going to be considered for vice president or that she was taking herself out of the running, she said that, that uh, Biden should, should pick a person of color for the, for the ticket. Um, and that sentiment has been ex- had been expressed by others. And in fact, the Gretchen Whitmer, who's a white woman who's the governor of Michigan, she initially tried to take herself out of the VP running and said that Biden should select a person of color. Biden sort of insisted that she be vetted because he really wanted to consider her. But to your point, I do think it probably made it easier and likelier for Biden to select specifically a black running mate and a black running mate who was a woman because he had already said he was going to select a woman after George George Floyd than before George Floyd. And when you looked at all of the black women who Biden considered, Harris seemed like the most obvious choice. And in fact, Harris had always seemed like the most obvious choice to be a running mate for Biden. Obviously, she wanted to be the nominee herself, but the fact that she had already run for president and therefore whatever problems she may have had more out in the public sphere now than, than maybe for some of these other candidates who are lesser known. So that was a, that was a big reason for her to be selected. Now, I will say that, you know, her presidential campaign was not very good, but, you know, running as a running mate is different than running as a presidential candidate. What does her nomination uh, say about the Democratic Party going forward, at least the Democratic Party in 20, 2020. Are black women the backbone of the party and are they being recognised as such? Kamala Harris could be about to make history. In November, she could become the first woman and the first black person to become vice president of the United States. 
Women are the key voting bloc in the US. In the 2018 midterm elections, 55% of eligible women voters went to the polls, compared to just under 52% of men. And black citizens turn out to vote in larger numbers than any other ethnic groups in the US, like Hispanics and Asians. And when it comes to black women, they are the key constituency of the Democratic Party. Black women are important first because they vote. We know they vote at very high rates. We know they vote at high rates for Democrats. And so if you are a Democrat and you seek to win an elected office anywhere where black women are in large numbers, you need them on your side. But beyond just their own voting, they do the work of organizing. They are the people who are volunteering. They are donating their funds. They're getting their family members out to vote. Over 90% of black women voters have turned out for the last three Democratic presidents. And Joe Biden would not be the Democratic candidate for president without them. In the South Carolina primary, they saved his campaign. Now that Kamala Harris is on the ticket, Democrats think that number could go even higher. I'm thrilled. I'm very excited to see her. I'm excited on two levels. First, as a black woman, it's wonderful to see that kind of representation to see someone who looks like me attaining the highest office or access to the highest office in American government is a great thing. But also as a political scientist, it's great to see the Democratic Party respond to one of its constituencies. I mean, you could break down the electorate into all sorts of different demographic groups, but uh, I think there's probably a good argument to be made that, that black women as a group are probably the most Democratic voting constituency of any constituency you could come up with in United States politics. Uh, I also think, you know, the Democrats are more of a multi-ethnic, multi-racial coalition than the Republican Party is. That's not to say that the Republicans don't get votes from uh, from non-white voters, um, but the Democrats are more reliant on the votes of the, the sort of growing non-white share of, uh, of the United States. And I think that going forward, I would expect that, that most, if not all, presidential tickets on the Democratic side will, will, will be multiracial in some way, um, in that, uh, you know, the, the, the Clinton-Kane ticket from 2016 might be the last all-white uh, ticket that, that we see going forward here for the Democrats. The Democrats are very concerned with, I guess, what you'd call descriptive representation, you know, making sure that particularly historically marginalized groups as, as Black Americans have been, and, and, and certainly other racial and ethnic minority groups in the United States have been, that, um, that sort of the, the leadership of the party kind of looks like the voting base of the party dem demographically. I, get, I think that's more important as just a goal for, for Democrats than it is for Republicans for, for a number of different reasons. I think there are ideological reasons for that. I also think that there there are um, just just the reality of the Democrats being the more uh, multiracial and multiethnic coalition. Um, so I do think the Harris pick was was is, is is reflective of that reality, and it might it, it might be something that we see in the future from Democratic presidential tickets. You you mentioned that it's different for the Republicans in terms of ideology. Is it really ideology or is it identitarianism, if that's even quite a word? Because if you are dog whistling and you are saying, let's make America great again, if you are saying there are dog shit countries, if you are always railing against immigrants, invariably you are saying that um, good old America is white. Isn't that really what, what, what this is all about? And because one of the, one of the things about the... Uh, the voting bloc of African-Americans is that actually, socially, 
they're quite conservative. Very many Southern Americans, Southern African Americans are quite pro law and order in the very traditional sense, etc. And were maybe one of the last constituencies to be for um, same sex marriage, etc. Socially, they're very conservative. So aren't the Republicans missing a trick? Because actually, they're equating America with being white, being American with being white. I do think that the perception um, of the Republican Party as as essentially having a having sort of race problems or being more accepting of of uh, racist thoughts and expressions, I do think that that has been a huge barrier to them making inroads in the black community. Because to your point. Um, the black community is actually very ideologically diverse. It's just that for basically for, for racial equity reasons, uh, black voters in the United States for decades and decades um, have uh, sort of migrated into the, uh, into the Democratic Party. And it, it really leads one to think whether the Republicans just sort of rethink their approach on how they actually would appeal to black voters. I just don't think they've, they've really figured it out. I don't think that they've put in the real effort to... Uh, um, to, to, to try to, to try to do that. Now I will say when I say ideologically, I mean, I think the points you raise are, are fair points. Um, but I, but I also think that the sort of the kind of idea of descriptive representation is just not as important to Republicans. I mean, Republicans, I think they're more sort of focused on sort of the individual and individual achievement than sort of communities of interest. Uh, and I also, th- you know, I think that that's sort of why like, the issue of affirmative action, you know, should universities it, it essentially uh, try to uh, go out of their way to uh, create a, you know, a diverse student body. You know, Democrats generally are more in favor of that. Republicans are lesser in favor of that. Um, but they, they feel like, we're, you know, I think Republicans would say, you know, no matter the color of your skin, everybody should get, you know, an equal opportunity. And, and then you sort of get in on your own merits. Now, again, there are, there are confounding factors that I think sometimes conservatives get don't. Get in on your own merits as long as one of your uh, uh, family members is incredibly rich and has already gone to that. Right. I think, th- I think there's a, there, there can be a disconnect on thinking that there's an equal playing yeah. field when in reality there isn't. But I think that's, that's just sort of the, some of the, the, the conservative ethos. And, you know, again, the, the, Trump really didn't do any worse with non-white voters than Mitt Romney did in 2012. And in fact, uh, you could argue that he did a little bit better. And Biden's current lead in the polls is, is really predicated on doing better amongst white voters than Clinton as, as compared to doing better amongst non-white voters. Now, again, Biden is still getting, you know, three quarters of the non-white vote. So he's, you know, it's not like he's doing poorly with non-white voters, but the shifts we're seeing, it's, it's interesting is that it's, it's more, it's more in the white vote than the non-white vote. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, and, and just, just to wrap up, because I suppose one of the currencies of being a pundit is you've got to be a futurologist. You've got to be able to extrapolate what's happening now and then say, so this means that is going to happen in the future. Some of the interesting strands of, of what you talked about was, you know, to look at the, pro- the, the trouble that the Republican Party has around race and, and identity. Kind of somewhat instructive that after the 2012 election, they did embark on a root and branch uh, look at uh, the future of the party that had to be more diverse if it was, if it was to survive. But very obviously that got ripped up with the election of Trump. The conventional wisdom is, and we, and here we are, it's August the 13th, 2020. The conventional wisdom as of today is that Trump will go down to a historic defeat. That's the conventional wisdom. And the caveat, of course, is, well, the conventional wisdom that was that he wouldn't win the last election. So, you know, I'm putting that out there for the listeners before people start jumping up and down. But let's just say that he does go down to a heavy defeat. How does the Republican Party remodel itself? And what would, let's say, a Kyle Kondik uh, Republican Party look like going up against um, the Democratic presidential pick for 2024, which will be almost invariably Kamala Harris? Whatever I might think the party should or shouldn't do, I think that that um, in some ways the the party has been sort of changed by Trump in that, and 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 a lot of the the voters that the party has picked up are um, are white voters, and particularly white voters who don't have a four year college degree. Um, that that that's a group that that has been Republican recently, and has really gotten more Republican under Trump. And that's the same kind of party that I think would exist after twenty twenty. And so I think that you might see um, the the Republican Party to continue to be kind of a um, to have sort of somewhat nativist elements, but also to be critical of cultural elites, which the Republican Party has been for a long time, to be, you know, so socially conservative and, on, and culturally conservative on matters of, of immigration and trade, um, which is, you know, maybe a little bit different from, from past Republican administrations. Uh, and I think you'd also expect the party to be, um, you know, conservative on fiscal matters, although maybe over time, um, the party would become a little bit less uh less less defined by kind of uh um supply side economics and reaganomics and that sort of thing um but but again i think the i think the party is 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 changed and that it's not going to go back to being um a, a party that is defined by you know someone like george hw bush or even like a mitt romney i mean i think it's just going to be different and you know it, if in fact November is bad for the Republicans and, you know, again, as we're sitting here today, it doesn't look like it's going to be good, but there's still time for that to change. 
uh, you know, the, the, we, we have these uh, ebbs and flows in American politics. You know, if Biden gets in office and he's got a uh, combined um, uh, Democratic Congress uh, and they start doing things and the economy is still bad, you know, the, the Republicans would be, could, could, you know, take back control of the Senate and the House as soon as 2022. You know, you could see kind of a backlash like you saw in the, in the 2010 elections after Obama got elected. So there's, you know, the, I, I, I'm just never very confident anymore about making long-term predictions in American politics because the pendulum is always swinging constantly from left to right. Uh, and you know it swung it swung right to some extent in 2016, and you know it's it's potentially swinging left again as um, you know events have, have kind of conspired against Trump, and he was never that popular anyway. But even when Trump is off the scene, I do think that that the party may be more Trumpy than say like being like Romney. You've been very sensible and not holding yourself to a hostage to fortune so I can play <laughs> this clip in uh, four years' time and, 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 and ridicule you, sir. Um, just, 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 very, just very, very last note, um, being uh, somewhat of a student of history and presidential history and the ebb and flows of um, American parties, do you not see a scenario whereby um, the Trump faction of which, arguably, I'd say the Trump faction are in the Republican Party. It's actually really pretty small, but they shout very loud. It's just like the Tea Party. Tea Party was never numerically particularly that big in the Republican Party, but it was populist before before Trump, and for a whole multiplicity of reasons, managed to have the oxygen of publicity, so it pushed the whole body of the party rightwards. Could we not see a situation whereby you have almost like the Democratic Party split under Strom Thurmond, you know, where you had uh, the Dixiecrats and the Democratic Party? Could there not be a southern rump of the Republican Party? And then these suburban, let's say, uh, northeastern and uh, western uh, Republican um, constituencies, people Orange County, just I've got no truck with that because they are, relatively speaking, socially liberal but they sign up to um you know reaganomics circa you know 2020 or 2024 let's say but they leave the identitarian white nationalist fringe of the of the republican party so could we not see a split on on those lines uh i think you could and you know some of those voters you talked about the kind of northeastern west coast suburban kind of typically Republican voters. I think some of them have left the Republican Party and they may be in the Democratic Party for good or they might um, they might they might sort of maybe maybe figure out something else. I you know we don't really have we haven't had a strong third party in the United States and typically what happens is sometimes there'll be a third party that kind of emerges and either it'll take over one of the two parties or one of the two parties will take over the the third party. but I, I do sometimes think if, if we were to have a third party in the United States, could it be kind of a regional party? Um, I guess if, if you think about the, 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 the UK, the UK, I guess it would be something like the, the, the Scottish National Party or something like that. And that it, it, it was able to win seats in Congress, just like SNP is able to win seats in Parliament because it has a strong regional base. You know, it's one thing if you're getting... 10% of the vote across the country, you know, you're not really going to win any seats in that scenario in, in the U S or in the UK. But if you get 10% of the vote in a single region, maybe you can win some seats. 
you know, I sometimes wondered if Trump had lost, if there could almost be like a kind of like an Appalachian Republican Party that is essentially that's like basically where Trump is the most popular. And that's a place that has sort of a strong kind of moderate to conservative democratic tradition. Um, could you could you maybe have seen some some sort of like Trump Republican Party emerge as sort of a counterbalance to the more kind of Wall Street Republican Party? Um, and and look, maybe you maybe you'd see something like that in the future. Um, I will say that our, our the two major parties in the United States really have proven to be pretty durable over the years. I mean, the, the Republican Party dates back to right before the Civil War. Uh, and you can really trace the Democratic Party back to Andrew Jackson or even to Thomas Jefferson. And I mean, Jefferson was a third president. So the Democratic Party has in, in some ways been around basically since since the since the, the, the just a little bit after the founding. Um, so, I, I, you know, and, and again, our system kind of uh, sort of channels our political energies into just having two major parties. Um, but, you know, we also have to be kind of modest about what the future might hold, too. Carl, uh, thank you for coming on to, to Mid-Atlantic and uh, thank you for, for also being being somewhat of a moderate yourself, sir, with not holding yourself <laughs> to be a hostage to fortune. Uh, just before we say goodbye to you, where can people catch up with you and your good work, sir, online? Uh, sure, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter at kkondik, K-K-O-N-D-I-K. Also, if you want to subscribe to our elections forecasting newsletter, Sabado's Crystal Ball, just go to centerforpolitics.org backslash crystal ball. It's free to sign up. You just put your email in there. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so we'll be following this election um, you know, through election day, we're also going to be starting our own. Um, we're going to be doing a, a weekly video chat um, talking about the elections, which is going to be at uh, we're going to have those archived, but it's going to be at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern time on on Thursdays. But if you're if you're uh, not in the United States and you're listening somewhere around the world, you can we're going to have those archived on our uh, on our website. Fantastic. And uh, we'd love to have you back on the show, um, maybe um, in the run-up to the election in the, in, the, in the week or so beforehand. Would that could, could could I get my people to speak to your people, and, and could that be a possibility, sir? Sure, absolutely. Fantastic. And don't forget, folks, of course, you can catch up with more Mid-Atlantic uh, by simply going on to uh, Facebook. And if you type in mid-atlantic we do have a page there it's somewhat half dead because as a function dyslexic i don't post a lot of things there but if you type in marketplace for the mind you'll see that that is a group which we are affiliated to so you can put your political thoughts and your musings there you can contact me where i'm royfield which is roi for india f-i-e-l-d at gmail.com and don't forget you can go to midatlanticshow.com and post us a voice note. Uh, we love getting them, and it means that you can have a right of reply by quite simply going on there, speaking into your laptop, into your smartphone, and it leaves a, an up to a two-minute voice note, which we then will include on a future show. Uh, thank you for giving us your ears. This has been me, Royful Brown, in London, speaking to Kyle Comdick, who's in Washington, D.C., and... Uh, We've uh, analysed and uh, chewed over the fat with uh, the various issues of American politics today, which is Joe Biden's pick uh, for his VP, which is Kamala Harris, but also we're looking at what that means uh, for the Republican Party possibly going forward. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special moms in your life. In what better way than with Osea's limited edition skincare sets featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited edition sets, perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for silky, smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go Facial Set has everything she needs to achieve spa-level results at home. They're so beautiful, you can skip the wrapping. For a limited time, you can save up to $48 on Osea's sets, plus get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. Pamper the moms in your life and get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code MOM.